KFI AM uh, 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. It is a cold, cold Thursday, February 16th. It was in the, what, low 40s uh, when I was driving in. It was in the 30s in a large part of Southern California. And uh, so we're in the middle of a cold snap. Uh, Welcome to uh, Southern California in the middle of winter. Uh, One of the things that I have been uh, talking about over the years is uh, the issue of homelessness and how we get people in the shelters and the money that's being spent. And it's a godly amount of money between uh, federal, state, county, uh, local. You know, L.A. is $1.2 billion into this, and uh, you've got the county. I mean, it's just crazy. And I have often said as uh, the uh, premise, we have to move all of these people out of homelessness, out of those tent encampments, out of living on the street, into shelters, temporary to medium uh, time shelters into permanent housing. Okay. I've often said there's going to be a large group of people that aren't going to want to move because they're simply mentally ill. And uh, I told you the story about uh, my brother's ex-girlfriend that uh, I I literally ran into in the parking lot. And she was living in a tent and had been for three years, actually on the street, not even in the tent. And I put her up and she was in a very, we put her up in a very small uh, studio and she had friends that would come over and sleep on the floor and they left. They didn't want to be inside. They wanted to be outside because that's what they were used to. I mean, clearly mentally ill. Uh, And that seems to be the problem. And I've often said there are huge numbers, and I was just waiting for real surveys to come out. Rand Corporation came out with uh, last year 54% of people on the streets are mentally ill. uh, And uh, even uh, the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority uh, that uh, is looking at studies, they're saying a third of the people out on the street have severe mental issues. And therein lies the problem, or a problem, a huge problem. And how do you deal with them? you got substance abuse. Already there's a big issue there. Certainly you have medical issues with people on the street. They're harder to treat because they're just sicker. Respiratory illness, heart disease, I mean, all of it. I mean, living on the streets is just no fun. Can you imagine people living on the street now? You go to a homeless encampment, they're in, it's in the 30s. That gets pretty miserable pretty quickly. Add to that mental illness and a lot of it. So you have a three-way battle going on. You've got medical issues. You've got the very nature of homelessness where some people simply don't have the wherewithal. They've lost the job, don't have the skills. Uh, and, and when someone is uh, homeless, excuse me, coughing on this one uh when someone is homeless what address do you give when you apply for a job you know how do you look presentable what do you say for your work history uh where 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 have you lived while i've lived on the that street corner over there for two years you know it just makes it so difficult and then the issue is going out and treating the mentally ill we don't have anywhere near the kind of money why is that Uh, because it takes trained people i didn't know this This was a story out of the Daily News that uh, working for the county of Los Angeles are street psychiatrists. And we're not talking about social workers. We're talking about psychiatrists, MDs. 
residency in psychiatry that go out and deal with the homeless. How many think there? Are, how many of those you think there are out there? Uh, almost none, and they desperately need it. It's just a different way of looking at it. We we don't have the money. We don't have the mindset. In Europe, you don't see homeless people like this. In industrialized countries, you don't see homeless like this. And the reason is it's just a different mindset. We think in terms of this is the land of opportunity and you should pick yourself up by the bootstraps and get a job and get going. Not really paying attention to some people who don't have the wherewithal. They just can't do it. Do we owe them a duty? I guess in a society where you, where we're a wealthy society, do we? But when the numbers are so great, where the money is so astronomical to deal with this, that in order to successfully deal with it, not only does it have to be at the, on the front burner, it has to be the only burner. So, no surprise, the only reason I'm bringing this up is because the studies just came out and it's as bad as we thought. Just received the news that Raquel Welch actually yesterday had uh, died uh, here in Los Angeles, Southern California, um, for, um, she was 82 years old. And really an extraordinary woman, uh, strong-willed, and it just wiped her out professionally. Uh, She took no guff from anybody. She, you know, for example, her breakout film, 1966, One Million Years B.C. I don't know if you ever saw that film. She had the very bad luck to get into some really horrific films. Well, that was one. She had three lines. And she broke out as this international icon almost overnight. If you've ever seen pictures of her, it's an iconic poster. Her coming out of the ocean in this uh, bikini, uh, caveman bikini thing that, uh, I tell you, drop dead gorgeous. And uh, she went on to a career of over 50 years, 30 films, 50 television series. And uh, she was a single mom, two kids, uh, came out of La Jolla. Uh, Beauty queen started very early. Started get, uh, winning uh, beauty contests at the age of 14. And uh, she had a really complicated relationship with her persona. I mean, her beauty got her into showbiz. Her beauty stopped her from being considered a serious actress, which she always wanted to do. And she was, you know, she had her head screwed on pretty straight. She understood that her beauty, which, I mean, extraordinary, was both a blessing and a curse. And uh, as uh, she said, uh, she was rarely taken seriously because, um, you know, she was thought of as a sex pot. She refused to do nude uh, scenes, as you can imagine she was asked to. So she said, you know, here I am, just a sex pot. I've got a great body. Uh, I probably can't walk or chew gum at the same time. This was an interview in uh, 2012 with Men's Health. And also, she looks back and talks a little bit about history. It was at a time when women were considered largely ornamental. They were not taken very seriously in the 60s. I mean, if you, this was actually even before the women's movement really exploded. And she earned a reputation for being strong-willed, taking guff from no one, being independent, and that killed her. 
1970, she actually took on the role of a transgender woman uh, in a film adaptation of uh, Gore Vidal's uh, satirical novel, uh, Myra Breckenridge. Great novel, horrible film. It got panned, as it should, because in the end, the final script, you kidding, you're not going to have transgender women there. So she ended up hating the prod, uh, the finished project. And she became known, and listen to this, uh, and this one I do remember, she became known for her fight that she had on the set with Mae West. Who was going to wear the black dress? And that became a staple of Hollywood lore. So we move forward to 1982. She sues MGM. Uh, she's going to be in the film uh, Cannery Row. Uh, it was the John Steinbeck World War II novel. And she was replaced by Deborah Winger, who was younger and certainly more affordable. And so she claimed the studio fired her because of her age. And to save money. The studio, of course, said, oh, no, no. She showed up late for work and took too long in makeup, as if it's that f her fault. And uh, she ended up, uh, well, $14 million settlement. She argued not only was it a breach of contract, she successfully argued and was arguing that she was just about to win recognition as a serious actor or actress, actor. And uh, six-year legal battle, 14 million bucks, but that is when her reputation exploded for being difficult, being independent, not really listening, which I don't know how much of that is true because uh, reputation, negative reputations fly really quickly around Hollywood. And at that point, her film career was effectively over. Uh, did you know that her dad was a Bolivian aeronautical engineer? She was born Joe Raquel Tejada, and he moved uh, his family to San Diego. She was born in Chicago, but he uh, moved the family to San Diego when she was just a little one to design aircraft during World War II. He was an aircraft designer. And she was a star student. People think, oh, she wasn't very bright. She was just this uh, gorgeous head on top of a gorgeous body. No, she's a pretty bright lady. Star student, and she started winning beauty uh, pageants when she was 14. And then in 1958, she won the title of Maid of California. What the hell is the Maid of California? How's that for a title? That's like Miss Lemonade by the Sunkiss people. I have no idea how that works. Anyway, she uh, goes to San Diego State University on a drama scholarship and then drops out to uh, take a job as a weather girl. They used to call them weather girls at that time. Weather people, weather person uh, at a local TV station. Married, she had two kids and got divorced uh, very early on. And uh, she landed a role, one of her first role was in Fantastic Voyage, also 1966. Oscar-winning drama. Now, let me explain. this: The Oscar, and I don't even know what the Oscar was for, but I'll tell you what it wasn't for. It wasn't Best Picture. It wasn't Best Actress. It wasn't Best Actor. It wasn't Best Direction. It wasn't Best Screenplay. I'm willing to guess it was uh, Special Effects because that turkey, like one, uh, uh, one million years B.C., also was a complete bomb. You got some very bad luck film-wise.
But she became a pop culture icon and, and did win a Golden Globe in 1973 for the movie Three Musketeers. She did some serious stuff. Uh, she starred on Broadway in the musical Woman of the Year, 1981, Golden Globe nomination for a TV show, Right to Die. Uh, just a, a fascinating woman, 82 years old, and as I said, uh, ahead of her time. You know, it's, uh, it was not a time uh, to be as strong as, uh, as she was, 1960s, 1970s. Today, obviously, a, a different uh, story. Uh, Jennifer, you ever been to a Medieval Times? Yes, I Have love you? it. Tyler, you ever been to Medieval Times? I haven't been to a Medieval Times, but I've been to the Renaissance Fair, so okay. they're similar. Not the, no, not the same, because the horses don't run over people at the Renaissance, the Renaissance oh, Fair. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. Medieval Times is the knights in Shining Arbor, and uh, they actually joust. Oh, yeah, okay. In the yeah. I mean, they really go at it. Yeah. And uh, there is a strike now uh, looming. As a matter of fact, they are on strike. The workers at Medieval Times are on strike. And I'll explain that in a moment, but I want to tell you about the political correctness of medieval times. It's been a lot of years since I've been, but I don't know if the female servers are still called wenches. Which, I guess not. Uh, I don't remember them. I, I was there about three years ago. Oh, I because it's been a long time since I've I been to them. I don't remember Yeah, and that. then uh, when they joust, I mean, they really joust. Yeah. Uh, various teams, and they go onto this huge equestrian, like an open field. It's almost like a, a, a pitch, you know, like a soccer field yeah. or a football field. And the horses go up and down. They go at each other uh, with the different colors. And the whole thing is completely contrived, by the way. It's all rehearsed. It's like uh, it's like wrestling, except it's even more rehearsed. And people fall off. And uh, But it's still very dangerous. Because you're falling off horses. You're getting banged up by these big poles, which are not foam rubber. So uh, they've gone on strike in uh, Buena Park out there in Orange County. And it's right off the freeway. Which freeway is it off of? Uh, is it off the of five? I don't think so. Uh, anyway, uh, you go down there and this, it's a castle looking thing. Did you know there are 11 of them? I, I didn't Around the know country. that there were that many. Yeah. I knew there was oh, more than excuse one. Excuse me, there were 10 of them. Uh, nine in the U.S. and one in uh, Canada. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and of course, uh, Canada has, um, uh, you know, the exchange difference. Uh, the, the, our, the poles in the American are about 10% uh, 10, 10 larger because of the <laughs> trade uh, difference. Okay, in any case, so uh, they're, they're striking because... Uh, they don't get enough money. Boy, do they not get enough money. By the way, the Buena Park store or center is uh, the busiest in the country. So just to let you know the kind of money they get, it's just gone union. So the non-union castles were given raises of about 20%. The union castles, like that one that just became unionized, the company proposed a 2% raise for our speaking uh, cast. No raise for the trumpeters, 2% for stable hands, 2 to 8% for the knights that get thrown off the horses. And in, uh, for example, the same union, uh, Agva, performers at Disneyland, uh, who do the same thing, get 33 bucks an hour. Uh, here, they get eighteen fifty an hour. And they work eight-hour days. Over there, uh, they work, uh, what, 15 minutes for three, four hours at Disneyland? And no trumpet player extra money. It's a union 
and they're offering $16 an hour for a trumpet player, which I would argue is a skill. It's a marketable skill. Now, if those trumpet players were in the musicians union, they would laugh at $33 an hour. They would laugh at. So the strike is going off. And one of the employees, the guy who's been there the longest, um, Graham Wojcik, he says uh, it's $18.50 an hour to jump off a moving horse that goes 20 to 30 miles an hour, and uh, this is what I get for it. Well, first of all, what I would do is go just two doors down and work at the Taco Bell and get eighteen fifty an hour for slinging meat into a taco. At least they call it meat for putting uh, the beef into a taco, as opposed to getting on a horse and being thrown out. But this is a story of uh, unionizing when the companies don't want you to unionize and they use their power. Amazon with the uh, unionizing the uh, fulfillment house where I think it was New York, where an Amazon fulfillment center, a warehouse was unionized, and what Amazon did to fight it was crazy. So uh, right now they're on strike. And uh, you're not, if you go down there and you want a wench, which I guess they don't call them anymore, to serve you food while you're watching this thing, ain't going to happen. Uh, and they, you don't have plate. Uh, you don't have, uh, you have plates, but you don't have any cutlery, no forks and knives. You eat, you tear the food out with your teeth and the big turkey legs. Are, ah, yeah. It's really a uh, tremendous amount of fun. And uh, those people get paid nothing. The horses get paid more. Now, as I pitched uh, this story, as I teased this story about uh, preventing birds from hitting your windows and dying Uh, Tyler said, uh, why don't you watch the video of Randy Johnson uh, pitching uh, in an exhibition game, throwing his 100-mile-an-hour fastball, and uh, a bird flies into uh, his, uh, right into the the path of uh, the fastball, and the bird exploded. Literally exploded. It was like there was a bomb inside the bird, and boom, off it went. So I'm assuming the bird didn't survive that. And that's a lead into uh, the story about uh, preventing bird strikes. Now, there are plenty of people out there, I don't know any, who uh, don't want birds to go smashing into windows uh, because they tend not to do very well. Uh, Sometimes um, uh, they fly off or they walk off and uh, they uh, will be die of their injuries or some cat eats them or i mean it is rough and it happens a lot i mean millions of times uh birds don't have great eyesight or if they do sort of windows uh they kind of miss so here you hear that thump on the window boom and down goes the bird so there are a lot of bird lovers out there and so let's figure out a way Uh, to keep birds away. Warning the birds. How about those stickers on the windows? Right? Decals or film applied to the windows. Uh, Or how about hanging out on the ledge just on the other side? Uh, a, uh, A stuffed hawk, for example. Some kind of predator that the birds will see. And, oh, owls that the birds will see and get the hell out of there. All right, so uh, people are buy decals, put them on the windows. Uh, they want to do good, obviously. Uh, they want to do right by birds. And as always, uh, there is a study that has just been done. 
I always refer to studies. And this was done uh, by John Swaddle, a professor of uh, biology at the College of William and Mary. And it was just published uh, actually this morning, early this morning, uh, our time, in uh, the research journal uh, Peer J. Never heard of it, but then again, who hears of these research, uh, these, uh, research journals? And he said, and the studies show that if you put a decal uh, the, uh, uh, inside your window, right? So the bird can see it. Because if you're in an office building, you're not going to go outside. And people don't put the decals outside their windows. They put them inside their windows. Why? Because the window's clear. That's why. And if a bird's going to see a decal, does it matter if it's inside or outside? It matters. Birds ignore the inside decals. They don't see them. And as far as uh, those stuffed predators, you know, the little gnomes with wings or whatever the hell they do, uh, you ever heard a bird actually laugh? The birds laugh at those. Don't pay attention what at all. Now, does it work? Can you make it so the birds actually pay attention? Yeah, you can. However, here are the rules. Because uh, this study, and they looked at what worked, what didn't work, and the assumption was, Dr. Swaddle, going into the study, thought there would be at least some benefit in those decals on the inside and those predator birds-like things on the outside. Some benefit. Zero. Nada. Goose egg. Yet, they did absolutely nothing. And I mean, you would figure it would increase 5% maybe help. Not 5%, not 4%, not 1%. Didn't do a damn thing. And they studied a lot of birds smashing into a lot of windows. Can you imagine? Your job is to go around and count the dead birds at the bottom of windowsills. I mean, that's a hell of a job, isn't it? I would unionize that job. The National Association of Dead Bird Counters. Dead Bird at Window Counters. I certainly would. And is there a registry? Uh, so if I, a bird guess, hits your window, you have to register I, said I would, dead bird? I would think so. I would uh, think so. So, Dr. Swaddle said no benefit to any of that and went on to say that what you're really doing when you put those decals up is a little bit of interior decorating. And that's it. So, bird lovers fall into uh, ineffective approaches. And one of them is uh, the bird of prey silhouettes, even on the outside. Uh, and the other one are those uh, stickers. Ne- neither one work. The American Bird Conservancy uh, reviewed about 200 window materials and treatments for bird safety and Also, uh, types of glass that are used. You know, does that help? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. So, uh, the director of the Glass Collisions Program at the Conservancy, there is the Glass Collisions Program at uh, the Bird Conservancy. This is getting better and better. And uh, it is not only you have to put the decals outside the window, but you have to space the lines. In the decal, 
the uh, width of the lines or the dots, whatever you're using, has to be very specific, and that is really critical. Now, are there things that actually do work outside of uh, those decals that don't work, outside of uh, those uh, birds of prey, uh, earsot stuffed, uh, whatever the hell those are sitting outside? Uh, yeah, there are things that actually do help. Turning off lights is uh, a good idea because you think that birds are blind. Uh, you think that birds uh, would uh uh, not fly around at night, even though the vast majority of birds do fly uh, during the day, uh, but they're attracted to light like moths. So there you go. You have a light on, splat, bird at window. If you have a bird in your house, turn the lights off if it's at night and turn your outdoor porch light on. It will fly to your porch light oh, out of your house. See, there you are. Good for you. Thank you. All right. So law, uh, light straw and disorient birds. Use motion detectors outside. Hmm. High rises are mostly to blame, right? That's where they fly in. Not true. Not true. Actually, single uh, family dwellings, one, two story buildings are the ones that most birds fly into. I've had two in my house in the past three months. Wow. Two birds. Okay. And I was just talking to Tyler and, uh, you know, it's not, I I don't want to say it's entertaining to see birds flying around and hitting windows. It's really not. However, I have said in a, let's say uh, a moment when I was running a temperature, if you go to Las Vegas and you're on the freeway going up the five and there is that huge solar farm, this immense solar farm that has all these these, uh, solar panels that are aimed at this building, this huge high-rise building, that at the top has this mirror that then produces power. It produces enormous amount of uh, actually electricity that goes down, spinning the turbines, et cetera. Birds flying through that will vaporize. At least there is no pain. It's like uh, uh, Randy Johnson with his fastball hitting the bird, except you don't even see the feathers. It's it's David uh, Copperfield. Now you see it, now you don't. Jason Middleton, our business guy, also an anchor. He'll be here most of the day, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, the business uh, show, Sundays, 2 to 3 p.m. Uh, Jason, all right, we have a lot to cover. Okay. Uh, and let's start with every, uh, what affects every single one of us, which we think about all the time, inflation, and what's the update? Okay, the update is inflation is still here. It's not as, it's not as... Mm, deflationary as we were thinking it was going to be. What I mean is it's not slowing down as much as we thought it was going to be. Now, it is slowing down. The Fed is pumping the brakes with the Fed rate hikes and everything. That seems to be working. Um, but we saw some other evidence that it's it's not because wholesale prices are up 0.7% more than we anticipated. That's a thing. Uh, housing demand is also down because the interest rates yeah. are up and otherwise, too. Yeah, so let, all this is kind of playing together. All right. So let me uh, ask this, because I'm particularly interested in housing costs uh-huh. uh, because of the, my background in building, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that is a couple things are going on. The reason, One of the reasons housing prices are so extraordinarily high is uh, lack of supply. Yes. We just don't have supply. California, Southern California, L.A., less so Orange County, but particularly L.A., make it uh, almost impossible. You apply for a permit, and they go, you know what? We really don't want you to build here, even though we want the tax base. So instead of building, just write us a check. Okay, and that's the way it works. 
So with uh, your hey, you you haven't built here. Let no, me, no, I haven't. Yeah, let me tell you how how nobody's great it, building here. Yeah, that's true. So uh, uh, that would increase demand uh, ridiculously because there just yeah. isn't anything to buy. But at the same time, mortgage rates are high, so uh, that decreases demand. Where is the formula in terms of how does it equate? Is there still more? Is it less? Uh, is uh, the are houses are there more houses for sale out there? No, see that's the thing. So demand it might be down as far as applications for mortgages, but so is housing starts. We have not seen uh, as few housing starts nationally speaking since the pandemic, since June of 2020. It's that low right now. So we're not adding to the supply side. The demand side seems to be slowing a little bit too, which is going to work out as far as inflation goes, but still it's if it's not a crisis, it's definitely something close to a crisis because unless you already own a house, of course. I mean, that's this look, house ownership has just the average age of a first house uh, owner has gone from about 29, uh, 35 years ago. It's average age was 29 for first house. It's now up into the mid 30s. And so that just keeps getting farther and farther out. That's the easiest way or was the easiest way for people to build family wealth was to buy the first house and get that equity and start building that slow and steady wins that race. Right now, people can't get into the market. And well, I mean, it, it, there's there's not enough houses there. For no, sure. Look at it. I mean, today, uh, even to buy a half million dollar house, which is way below the median yes. uh, in L.A. County, Orange County being even higher. Mm-hmm. So let's say it's seven hundred thousand dollars, which buys you a pretty nice house. Sure. You need one hundred and forty thousand dollars down. You write a check for one hundred and forty thousand dollars and then pick up a mortgage right. at seven percent. How many people have $140,000 in the bank? Not uh, not terribly enough. We don't have our savings rate is way lower than our spending rate is. And, uh, and part of the inflationary problem is too, is, look, inflation in a large in a large swath is uh, too much money, too few goods, right? So we're still building out of that situation. Amazon. Uh, people don't realize how much it costs to sell on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, my best friend Savile, we sell cookware. And we used to sell on Amazon, but they took like 35%. You got off easy. Of the sales. Yeah. 35% people would line up for right now. Right. Because what's going on? Well, it's reporting that they take about 50% of every conversion slash sale uh, if you sell off of their platform. Now, granted, you are paying for certain things, you know, logistics and delivery services and things like that. You might be able to get it cheaper somewhere else, but then you won't be able to get the whole package, the whole umbrella of goods. And I'm seeing some reports of 52, 53% cuts going to Amazon on some things too. So you're right. Uh, it is hard to do uh, to make the money on it. The one thing that seems to be helping a little bit is that they're adding advertising to the site, making it a little bit easier for you to advertise your goods when it comes to results under search results and whatnot. But at the same time, that kind of like devalues things because it's easier to get the ads and so they're everywhere. Uh, so they, you know, it's signal to noise is not very good for your money right there, but where else are you going to go? Yeah. That's uh, the, you talk about a monopoly, uh, because Amazon has become a verb. Yes. It like is Google. It is. Uh, yeah, you exactly like Google or Kleenex mm-hmm. or Xerox right, right. where, or Band-Aid. I mean, it's no longer a name brand. It is, uh, beyond that. It is the term for the entire sector. Right. And, uh, it's, uh, it was, uh, cause, uh, you know, my friend Savile, who was selling on Amazon for years, uh, gets together with other people in the industry, and they talk. And, uh, and the general consensus is the only people that make money on Amazon is Amazon. Sure. You can kiss the rest of it goodbye. 
Yeah, I mean, your, your margins are shrinking and shrinking. You have inflationary problems going up, too. You have people uh, not shopping online as much because the uh, COVID situation is is relaxing, if not over. So people are going out and buying more stuff. So the, the, the traffic is down a little bit. Amazon yeah. revenues are down a little bit. They're going to have to find that bottom line somewhere, uh, that margin. For, it, it has been a while since uh, we have realized and talked about the fact that Amazon no longer has the best deals out there. No. You have to search where it was a given if you went to Amazon originally. Right. You know, in early days, you got the biggest bargain in the world. Well, you did for sure, uh, but then you saw, okay, but if, if you look at it from the merchant side too, the cost of being on the Amazon platform have gone up for the past six years. So we're up to, say, 50% ballpark. It could be 52, 48, but around 50%, that's, that's an increase over six years. That includes the COVID years when your volume was probably up because people were shopping more online at the time. Now those volumes are going back down again, so your margins are shrinking too. Are you getting as much bang for your buck is what you have to ask yourself, but at the same time, where else are you going to find the contracts uh, that you might have to sign for delivery purposes. Maybe you could get it a little bit cheaper someplace else uh, with a more direct uh, to the door kind of situation, but you're going to have to enter longer term contracts for those things. And Amazon is uh, is ease of use, right? Low barrier to entry. All right. The streaming bubble. I've been reading about uh, the layoffs that are going crazy, particularly Netflix have laid off, has laid off. Hulu yeah. has laid off. And uh, this increasing, ever increasing bubble uh, it looks like it's popped. Let's talk about that. Well, it looks like, okay, I, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Hulu there because it kind of falls into Disney uh, as thinking about that as well as part of its reorganization under Bob Iger. Uh, Hugh, you and Wayne were talking earlier about uh, linear television, and you watch the Super Bowl on YouTube TV. I have YouTube TV as well. That does count as linear, right? So DVR also counts as as linear. As far as the streaming bubble goes, look, this is the way the market is supposed to work. You had a lot of people come in, a lot of competitors, your Paramount Plus and your, your Disney Pluses and everything else, and Hulu, of course, which is the island of misfit content as far as I'm concerned. We'll see if they spin it out. But when you have this, this is the way it's supposed to go. That's capitalism, right? So it, the, the competitors are, are coming at you pretty hard. They want your attention. Paramount Plus just announced this morning that its revenue was down 7% also announced it's going to up its monthly subscription rate by $2 as well. So they were fighting for the dollars. This is going to, we're going to see this time next year, we're going to have about a third less streaming options, I think. We're going to see some collapse in the market. You know, when we were talking about this uh, and, we're, you know, looking at what the topics we're going to talk about, I sort of did a, an analysis of the streaming services that I subscribe to. Mm -hmm. Netflix, Hulu, Peacock, yeah. Paramount Plus, yeah. Disney Plus, Yes. Uh, and a couple of others. That and there's add-ons you can get. You yeah, that's true. Plus and I, and and I have forgotten uh, a lot of, uh, of what I actually have. So I pay, um, I basically pay the equivalent of a mortgage payment <laughs> for uh, my platform. And the only one that I think, uh, the two that are worth it to me. Yeah. Uh, Netflix. Yeah. And Amazon. Amazon Prime. Yes. Because uh, that is still even at twenty bucks a month, and it's not twenty bucks a month. Actually, it is now, isn't it? Yes, Nineteen ninety now at twenty bucks a month. That's still a bargain if you buy anything on Amazon and get it delivered. Yeah, for free. Well, and you get all the content. Okay, fine. But your Amazon Prime membership went up twenty bucks as well. So you got to you got to factor that into your monthly. You're paying for the video as well on top of everything. 
And then also, if you think about Amazon as the platform, as we just were, uh, you can get others like you can get PBS off of Amazon. PBS doesn't get the credit for that necessarily. It's just an exposure to audience kind of situation. So if you're if you're chasing content like I don't have Showtime anymore because I watched billions and then I didn't didn't care for it anymore after two seasons. So I dropped Showtime. Well, Showtime's going to be bundled together with Paramount Plus later on this year. So then what am I going to do? And is that going to justify yeah. up in that in that subscription? You know, I was rewatching billions. Uh. Uh, a couple of nights ago, and I tried to get back on, and I forgot what platform it's on. And I've been looking for it, and uh, some of the platforms are uh, continue watching, right? Which yeah. and others you don't have, right? And then yeah. others uh, give you you want to go back to previous episodes. Others don't, right? And they make it impossible to look at what you were watching. It drives you completely crazy. I think you mentioned Amazon and Netflix for for a really good reason. That's the depth of the libraries they have, the access to the content that they already have, not just their original content, which is pretty solid, but access to others too. And so those do kind of. We forgot to mention Tubi, which is owned by Fox. Uh, my daughter loves to because she can watch Rockford Files, where she used to be able to until last month, and then it moved over to uh, something else that I forgot. Oh, Roku. I watch it oh, on Roku. Yeah, it went on Roku, yeah. Yep. I'll now, I use a Roku uh, machine, you know, the little uh, Roku. I go yeah. through Roku but, that, Ro Roku, but that doesn't mean I'm on Roku, does it? Yeah. You oh, if, I, if I actually I go through the Roku channel, but then that's normal TV. You, 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 you pay for the – well, you have commercials on that, right? It's called Fast, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wait, wait, why fast. would you why would you pay to watch commercials? No, that I don't get. It's free to watch yeah, commercials. Free, free advertise uh, so, I forget what fast asked for. Oh man, I should have had more tea. Yeah, so you can if you watch Rockford, yeah. yes, there will be a commercial, but it'll be like one VTAMA commercial. That is the only commercial apparently that plays on the Rockford Files. Yeah. And the only thing I, the, the only place I will watch commercials are uh, the nightly news, et cetera, because I go through the commercials. Yeah. Right. So I don't watch the commercials to watch the commercials. Right, right. Can't do that on those other platforms. And sports, you'll watch advertising on sports because that's appointment viewing, right? You, news and yeah, sports. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, I that's yeah, appointment I viewing. I don't watch sports. I watch the Super Bowl. All right, we're done, guys. Uh, Jason, uh, this Sunday, 2 to 3 p.m. Business time with me at 2 o'clock. You got it. You, and then the rest of the day, you're the anchor. Let's uh, go ahead and go forward with Musings with Mo Kelly. And Mo is heard every night, 7 to 10 p.m. right here on KFI. And he is at Mr. Mo Kelly is his uh, social. Uh, Mo, good morning. Good morning, my friend. Okay. Uh, yeah. And by the way, I think you actually mean it when you say my friend. Because when I say my friend, I don't mean it with anybody. I actually do mean it. I know it's I scary. Consider you a friend? I know, scary. Should scary. I not consider you a friend? Well, I, you know, you can consider me a friend because that's the, that's the best I can do. Bill, you were at my wedding. Uh, that's true, but I came for the food. <laughs> it was spectacular. <laughs> I mean, the food was one some of the best food at a wedding I've ever had in my life. All right, now a story that just broke that I know you're going to be talking about tonight, and that is uh, the Georgia grand jury investigating the 2020 election and a couple things just happened. They are recommending that the DA uh, go and uh, charge uh, certain uh, witnesses that were in front of them. We don't know who uh, that for perjury. In other words, they just lied in front of the grand jury. At least that's the grand jury is saying. And uh, the investigation was into the election. The allegation of fraud that uh, the election was stolen. They investigated it and 
they said there was no evidence of fraud, which 63 judges said the same thing over the course of uh, the fiasco of uh, trying to deny the election, as well as countless, matter of fact, 50 uh, election boards uh, said uh, no, no fraud. So your take on this, and I know this just came down the pike, so you're going to be diving into it a little bit deeper tonight. What I find most interesting is that when the grand jury thinks that someone committed perjury, they're saying it because, or in part because, they were able to ask the witnesses questions. When you're, I've served on a federal grand jury, and I know the state grand jury laws in, in Georgia are somewhat different, but I do know that they can question the witnesses. So they asked questions and didn't receive the answers, or they received contradictory answers from other witnesses or other established evidence. And in also Georgia, they cannot uh, uh, offer a true bill for that indictment. You understand it has to come from the um, uh, the state prosecutor who is investigating. They can only recommend charges, which is different from federal and also California. But what I found most interesting was they're calling him a liar because they ask questions of these various witnesses. And obviously they can't publish the names. Yeah, it, here's um, uh, my take on this. Uh, and uh, uh, you can comment or not comment or say, handle your out of your mind. And now I'm going to speculate. Uh, and uh, that's it's pure supposition on my part. And I'm going to take a page from what happened in front of all the judges when the allegation of fraud took place uh, uh, as a result of the election to try to overturn it. We know Giuliani, Giuliani testified in front of uh, the grand jury. And I'm going to just use him as an example. I have no idea if he is uh, one of the witnesses that's being nailed for uh, perjury. But uh, what happened was he got disbarred or he was suspended for a month and got nailed because he actually went in front of judges and said, I have proof that the election was stolen. And a judge said, that's fine. Show me the proof. And this actually happened. I, I have it in my hotel room. That's where the proof is. That's fine, Mr. Giuliani. Go to your hotel room uh, and uh, bring it back. I couldn't find it. I know I have it, but I couldn't find it. Uh, now, saying I have proof or contradicting some other witness when none of that exists, uh, I think clearly that that is open for perjury. I'm surprised that he wasn't nailed for perjury in front of judges. Uh, so you've sat on these. What do you think actually happened? I honestly believe that they... Let's say in your hypothetical of Rudy Giuliani, they asked him questions, he gave answers, and when you're on an investigative grand jury, you're with the same group of people over weeks and months, and you can request other witnesses, you can question the witnesses, you can request other documentary evidence and bring that into your deliberations. So if they listen to Rudy Giuliani or any other uh, witness and it didn't jive with what they already saw, what they already knew, they can ask for that evidence and compare the two uh, testimonies or, or documentary evidence and come to a, a reasonable conclusion that that witness, in the case of this hypothetical, is Rudy Giuliani, was not truthful under the law. They are sworn in as a witness. Yeah, so no they are under oath. Now, it's important to note that I don't think uh, President uh, Trump uh, testified in front of the grand jury. Uh, so uh, he clearly is not going to be held accountable for perjury. And as a matter of fact, I think the one time where I, I think he testified under oath uh, in a deposition uh, where he took the uh, Fifth Amendment 400 times. And uh, so you're not going to see uh, perjury at all against uh, former President Trump. You might see obstruction. You might see interference with a, a governmental process. Uh, there's a few things you might see, but I don't think you're going to see that. This is a fun one, Mo. 
Uh, Winnie the Pooh goes completely psycho. Winnie the Pooh, a serial killer. And of course, the first question is, wait a minute, Disney owns Winnie the Pooh. How did this happen? Well, it went into public domain as of January 1st, 2022. And this is the most brilliant idea I've heard of possibly in my life. No exaggeration, no hyperbole, because there was a plan put in place to sweep up these uh, rights and, and use them for a film which was made for less than $100,000. Less than $100,000. It's already grossed more than a million dollars in Mexico, and it hasn't been released yet in the United States. It'll be released on Friday. It'll be released in the United Kingdom on March 10th. It's going to make millions and millions of dollars. It almost reminds me of the Blair Witch Project, uh, which costs virtually nothing. But the difference is uh, that was an outlier. This was planned, correct? Yes. This was this planned. Yeah. So uh, uh, this one's even more impressive. So I, I don't know. Have you? Is, is there a trailer out there? Have you seen Oh, there's a part? trailer out there. No, it's a trailer out there. And you got to remember, it was made for less than $100,000. It is a, a stereotypical quintessential slasher film. It follows Pooh and Piglet. You forgot Piglet. Piglet is out there killing folks, too. They become feral and bloodthirsty, and they embark on this murderous rampage, and they're terrorizing a group of young university women, and an adult Christopher Robin has returned to the 100-acre wood five years later after leaving college. And the backstory is that Pooh and Piglet are mad at Christopher Robin for leaving them, deserting them, and so they go insane and they take it out on society. I think that's terrific. I really do. I love that idea. Now, uh, we, we talk about public domain, which is one of the reasons why all the classical music uh, pieces, you know, Beethoven, uh, Schubert, uh, you know, Mozart, anybody can do those because they're public domain, obviously. Nobody owns them. How is it possible that Winnie the Pooh, uh, what, did, did Disney just miss it? Uh, or is just the timeline uh, uh, just reached the point where uh, there's nothing more they can do? 95 years, it expired and it went back into public domain. And they were right, the people involved were just right there with the plan to scoop it up and get the, the film rights to Winnie the Pooh, and this is what they did, and now there's already been a sequel greenlit for this. This is going to make probably, I want, I'm guessing here, but I think between like five and 10 million in the United States. It's going to be in more than 1,500 theaters, so we can do that here in the United States. And the, the buzz on this movie is ridiculously good. Now, I've seen, I have one friend who's seen it, and he said it's bad in a cinematic sense. It's so bad that it's actually good in that you are, laughing at it, but at the same time appreciating its its value for being made for less than $100,000. So how does uh, Disney react to this? Because clearly the story is not only Winnie the Pooh becomes a serial killer and the story is the public domain aspect of it, but part and parcel of this is Disney because Winnie the Pooh is so connected to Disney. What yeah. does Disney do about this? Do they issue Di press releases? Do they uh, come out with commercials saying this isn't us or we have no connection to this? They have not said anything publicly in my research. I haven't said anything. They're not acknowledging it on any level. Now, if I were Disney, and I'm not, but if I were Disney, I would buy it up in a heartbeat. I'd give them 30, 40 million, whatever, to buy it back and have them go away. Make them an offer they can't refuse. Uh, but that doesn't stop anybody else from doing the slasher movies. Well, it depends if they sell over the rights to them. 
Oh, well, I okay. You, so you're saying uh, the uh, it went public domain and then they picked up the rights because it was yeah. just wide open. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot like uh, people who uh, own uh, website names or people that own uh, – I had one uh, that, uh, well, uh, it was taken from me and I had to buy it back, uh, one of uh, my names uh, that I used uh, on the website. So, yeah, it, it, things can slip. Well, you wouldn't think that Winnie the Pooh – it would happen to Winnie the Pooh. Go figure. All right. Uh, what else? Do we have time for this? Uh, yeah, let's just do uh, just one real quick one. And we only have a, a couple of minutes. And okay. that's uh, Nikki Haley and her announcement. What, what's your take on that uh, for president, especially now she's fighting Trump? I would say not everyone is running for president. Just because you announce a candidacy doesn't mean that you really have your eyes set on the Oval Office. Sometimes you're running for a, a larger platform. Sometimes you're running to be considered as a VP okay. candidate. You know, so I would say that she's running to enlarge her profile. She's arguably not even the most popular would-be presidential candidate from her own state because Tim Scott is getting ready to get in as well. Right, and she's, uh, what, 1%, but then she hasn't started. I mean, Donald Trump is at, uh, what, 40%, and then you have Tim Scott, you have DeSantis in the 30s. So, yeah, I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, all right, Mo, uh, tonight, 7 to 10 p.m., lots going on at Mr. Mo Kelly is uh, his social address. Mo, you have a good one. We'll catch you tonight. Talk soon. All right. So, so much going on for sure. Quick word about uh, the phone calls that I'm about to take. Uh, since it is Thursday, I am taking phone calls off the air for Handle on the Law, where I'm going to give you marginal legal advice. The number is 877-520-1150. 877-520-1150. As I said, off the air, you can still listen to uh, Gary and Shannon uh, right here on KFI. And uh, you'll just do it on the phone, and I'll get through as many of these phone calls as I possibly can. In the meantime, uh, coming up, Gary and Shannon, 877-520-1150 for Handle on the Law. All right, take care, everybody. Catch you tomorrow morning. This is KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. 